You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. jump into the Word of God and continue to worship God. So Ian's going to come and do the next spiritual discipline with us. So as Ian comes forward, we might just, if we can stretch out our hands and we'll just pray for him. Father, we, we lift up Ian to you, Lord. We just pray, Lord, we thank you for his heart, Father, Lord. We thank you that you prepared a word for him, Father. And, and we just pray, Lord, as, as the words come out, they're your words, Father, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that they'll just fall in our lives, Lord, and we'll be able to put them into practice, Father. We just pray, Lord, that that you, would you work for Ian, Lord, and, and open our hearts to receive, Lord. And we thank you, Father. We just pray you speak with confidence, Father, Lord, and, and really bless him through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, everybody. Um, weren't they awesome words of testimony this morning? They were just fantastic. Isn't God good? He, he uh, lifts us up when we're feeling down, as uh, Mike testified. He uh, strengthens us with dreams about the retaining walls of prayer, as Geraldine testified, and he comforts when we're in grief and uh, confusion, as Anna shared with us. Wonderful thing. And uh, um, yeah, anyone who has any testimonies, I encourage you each week, if you have anything that uh, the Lord has done or the Lord has laid on your heart, to come up and share it because it builds faith for the rest of us too. It's a great thing to be testifying to the goodness and the mercies of God. Um, we've been starting off the, the message recently with uh, prayers from uh, the Valley of Vision. And I've got another one for you this week. Um, Valley of Vision, for those who don't know, is a collection of Puritan prayers from from the 16, 17, 1800s and uh, these were guys who knew how to pray and uh, I find it inspiring, I find it challenging actually to be reading their prayers and thinking wow how far short of their prayers do I fall when I offer up my self-centred and uh, fix my problems type of prayers anyway this one the prayer goes and I uh, invite you actually to close your eyes and just uh, listen in and, uh, and maybe offer it up as your own prayer as well. Lord Jesus, I am blind. Be my light. Ignorant. Be my wisdom. Self-willed. Be my mind. Open my ear to quickly hear your Spirit's voice and run after his beckoning hand with delight. Melt my conscience so that no hardness remains. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. When Satan approaches, may I flee to your cross and there cease to tremble at all terrors. Be my good shepherd to lead me into the green pastures of your word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. Fill me with peace that no raging worldly storms may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. Your cross was raised to be my refuge. Your blood poured out to wash me clean. Your death to give me security. And your name is given to me to save me. By you all heaven is poured into my heart, but my heart is too small to comprehend your love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a slave, a rebel, but your cross has brought me near, has softened my heart, has made me your father's child has brought me into your family, 
has made me a joint heir with you. O that I may love you as you love me, that I may walk worthy of you, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see your beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of your spirit in my heart. For unless he moves powerfully in me, no inward fire will burn. Amen. Amen. We've been uh, looking in recent weeks at the spiritual disciplines, those biblical practices that are designed to shape us, to mould us, to make us into more godly people, to conform us to the image of Christ, which is our goal, I hope, as, as a church this year, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I've been encouraging you to commit yourself to practising them regularly this year. And I made the bold promise at the start of it that if you will commit to this, at the end of the year you'll find yourself more like Christ than you are today. The feedback I've uh, been receiving so far has been pretty encouraging. Some of you are putting them into practice and uh, I'm excited to hear that and, uh, and without, hopefully without sounding arrogant, I think I can see changes in myself too. Just a softening, I think, in myself to him and more of a desire to seek him. That's not because of anything that I've been able to work up in myself. It's simply the Holy Spirit doing what he promised to do when we set our hearts to him, spend time with him in prayer, in worship, in reading his word. He changes us from within. So before we go too far, let's have a look at the definition and the list of the spiritual disciplines to refresh our memory. I hope I've got this technology right. Yes, it's on. My first time trying to work with technology from the front, so no, it doesn't seem to be. You're you're driving, John. <coughs> okay, spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and. The list of these spiritual disciplines are prayer, fasting, Bible reading, meditation, worship, fellowship and confession. So we'll continue this week with the next of them. We did a couple of weeks recently on prayer and the next one is fasting. And when I first started thinking about this, I almost decided not to preach on it. It's been a long, long time since I attempted a fast. So, uh, and I can't remember the reasons why I did it then or the results of that fast either for that matter. So I wasn't sure I would have any credibility if I talked to you about fasting this morning. And it's not a very popular topic of conversation generally, certainly among Christians and among non-Christians it's probably mostly in the context of fasting for health benefits, detoxes and things like that. So I didn't expect to have very much to say about it, so my first thought was maybe I'll combine it with one of the other simpler ones, maybe meditation or something, you do two or maybe three of the disciplines in one message. But not surprisingly, as I started to dig into it, I found out the Bible's actually got quite a bit to say about fasting. And uh, it's a good thing too, because that means it's not my wisdom or my experience that uh, you have to rely on, but it's on the Word of God and what He has said about it. <coughs> 
So fasting is a practice that's uh, been going on for thousands of years among different groups of people, different religions, for lots of different reasons. Um, The ancient Persian religion of Zoroastrianism forbade fasting. The um, Indian, ancient Indian religion of Jainism actually thought that voluntary starvation to death is the ideal type of life, denying yourself until you die. Don't you wish you were a Jain? And I suppose you could could possibly detect the uh, commitment of a Jain to their religion by how old they are or how fat they are. But anyway... Many of the tribal and pagan religions use fasting as a way to try and appease the gods or control the gods. In modern societies, I mentioned it's probably more likely to be used for weight loss or for detox reasons, or to make a political statement to try and pressure the government to change policy on something. I'm old enough, and some of you others are old enough, to remember the troubles in Northern Ireland um, during the... 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s. In 1981, many prisoners of the IRA went on hunger strikes to protest a change in the British government policy. The hunger strike was called off after 10 men died of starvation. And one of those men was elected to Parliament during that that period and died before he ever got to take up a seat there. In more recent times, we've seen asylum seekers go on hunger strikes on Manus Island and Nauru and Christmas Island, I think. But fasting for spiritual purposes, at least, seems to be almost unheard of today. There's not necessarily anything wrong with these other types of fasts, but they are not Christian fasts. In a book that came out nearly 40 years ago, Richard Foster makes a statement which I think still rings true today. He said, in a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of place, out of step with the times. The constant propaganda fed us today has convinced us that if we do not have three large meals each day with several snacks in between, we're on the verge of starvation. It has become a positive virtue to satisfy every human appetite. So what is fasting? There's a couple of definitions that might be helpful for us. A fairly narrow definition is a voluntary abstinence from physical nourishment, that is food and drink, for special spiritual purposes. That's what we actually see consistently through the Bible, fasting from food and drink. Every fast in the Bible is that type of fast, as far as we can tell. So that raises the question, of course, is it permissible to fast from anything else, such as TV or Facebook or video games or sport, for example? Martin Lloyd-Jones defined fasting as abstinence from anything that is legitimate in and of itself for some special spiritual purpose. And someone else has said that the deliberate fasting is the deliberate abstinence from some form of physical gratification to achieve a greater spiritual goal. So those two definitions give us a greater latitude in what our fasting could be. By those definitions, we could fast from TV or Facebook or sport instead of food. But first, we'd better look at some examples in the Bible to give us a, a handle on fasting. 
then we can decide intelligently if and how fasting may be applied to other physical desires. There are apparently 77 references to fasting in the Bible. Most of them occur in the Old Testament. I can, can count at least five different purposes associated with fasting and others have come up with more than that. There's handouts on your seats that uh, have a list of ten, I think, on there from, uh, from another source. But the ones I've come up with are firstly mourning and grief, repentance and confession, petition, that is seeking help from God, humility and shame, and spiritual preparation. So five different purposes for fasting there. And of course, they're not sharply defined categories. One often overlaps with another, and can, as you read through the scriptures, you'll see, well, it seems to be primarily mourning, but there's also some confession or something in amongst it or whatever. And uh, sometimes there's, uh, there's um, spiritual preparation and a desire to get something from God, a petition in it. It took me by surprise a little bit when I realised that. I'd always, I guess in the back of my mind, assumed fasting was about getting something from God. But the vast majority of examples of fasting in the Bible have nothing to do really with getting something from God. And much of the fasting in the Bible seems to be corporate, done as a group of people. There's no question we should fast privately. Jesus talked about that, as we'll see a bit later on. But fasting is often and frequently done communally, done in conjunction with others of like mind. One of the first instances of fasting we see in the scriptures comes after a tragic event in the history of the Israelites. Some people of the tribe of Benjamin had committed a particularly evil act. And uh, the other tribes were so outraged by it, they raised up an army and sent to attack the Benjaminites to punish them. But after two days of battle, the Benjaminites had killed 40,000 of the Israelites instead of the other way around. And then we see in Judges chapter 20, all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. It's not surprising that the people wept. 10% of their men of fighting age had been wiped out. That's, that's tough. That's close to home. Every family would be in some way affected by it. So they wept, they fasted, and they inquired of the Lord. It's not the only time that the people mourned and fasted. They mourned and fasted when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. Nehemiah mourned when he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were in ruin. And it seems that fasting, corporate and privately, are appropriate responses to national tragedy. Given that that's a common pattern in scripture, what might a modern equivalent be for us in Australia in 2019? What are some national tragedies that might inspire us to fast and to pray as a church or as a nation? Currently, of course, there's the ongoing drought causing great distress and hardship to many of our farmers, increasing the rates of suicide amongst them, which is already vastly too high. 
Currently, there's a frighteningly high rate of abortion in this nation. Around 100,000 babies are killed every year, frequently in the name of convenience and lifestyle. And one of our major political parties is running the next election on the platform of free abortions. So when the federal election comes around, I'd ask you to be mindful of that as you decide your vote. Frequently, bushfires, like the bushfires that wiped out so much of uh, Melbourne surrounds 10 years ago, the Black Saturday fires, the recent fires down in Gippsland. Major floods, cyclones, natural disasters, as they call them, that cause great loss of life and loss of property. Acts of terrorism and gang wars and extreme violence on our home soil and especially the hardness of heart to the gospel in this nation. These are all tragedies that should inspire us to fast. In the early chapters of 1 Samuel there's another tragic story. This time it's one of corruption and abuse amongst the priesthood and under the worthless sons of Eli who was the priest at the time and about idolatry amongst the people. The Ark of God has been captured by the Philistines after they had slaughtered thousands of the Israelites. Then God punishes the Philistines. It's a story worth reading for its humour, if nothing else. It's, a, it's quite a hilarious story. It's in the first several chapters of 1 Samuel. Um, but they return the Ark to Israel where it belongs. Then the prophet Samuel calls the people together. 1 Samuel 7.2 tells us that it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. The people repented of the sin of the nation and their personal sin in turning away from the Lord. And there's plenty of times when we turn away from the Lord, isn't there? Times of our own personal sin, confession with fasting, can be an appropriate response. And if we took the great evil of our sin against the Lord seriously, we would probably also mourn our human weakness and turn to him for grace. Remember what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If you've forsaken your first love, it's time to turn back to him in repentance and confession and with fasting if necessary. Fasting is also appropriate when we seek God's help or intervention in times of great fear or distress. The Israelites fasted when faced with a military attack from a much stronger power. 
We see in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they're in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in front of the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. His prayer goes on quite lengthy after that. But Jehoshaphat knew exactly where to turn in times of trouble. When faced with potential disaster at the hands of a powerful enemy, he set his face to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout the land and cried out to God for protection and for rescue. Notice they didn't just pray, they didn't just fast, they also prayed. It's an important point. Fasting should always be accompanied by prayer. What's the point of fasting if we're not also taking our fears and our worries to the Lord? We're not heard for our many words, as we know, but we're also not heard for our empty bellies. We're heard because we have a Father who sees into the heart, sees the reasons why we're seeking him. And he delights to answer the prayers of his children. So that's an example of of national corporate fasting to call on God for his help. But in the life of King David, we have an excellent example of private fasting and calling on God. Sure, you'd all remember the famous story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband to try and cover up his sin. Doesn't it seem strange that when David has committed such great sin that God would call him a man after my own heart who will do all my will? The passage we're about to look at shows us why God considered David a man after his own heart. David's confronted by the prophet Nathan while he's still covering up his sin and his response in Second Samuel chapter 12 is, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. When confronted by his sin, David's immediate response was repentance. He tried to cover it up, but when confronted, he repented. No hesitation. I've sinned against the Lord, David said. Not, I have sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, you might notice. I have sinned against the Lord. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. He acknowledged his sin. He repented without hesitation. He turned to the Lord for forgiveness and mercy. Oh, that we would all have a heart like David's, soft towards the Lord, 
quick to repent and always ready to fall into the arms of mercy. Anyway, David immediately sought the Lord and fasted for the child's life. No doubt his fasting was prompted as much by his repentance as by his desire for the child to live. The reasons to fast don't always neatly fit into one category, you might notice. It's rarely mourning only or petition only that would prompt us to fast. David fasted for seven days, hoping and praying that God would be gracious and allow the child to live. But after seven days, the child died. When David heard the sad news, strange response, he got up, had a shower, put on clean clothes and went to worship. wonder how many of us would be prompted to worship at the death of our child. I find David's response both challenging and inspiring. It's challenging because I'm not sure I would respond with worship if one of my children died. But it's inspiring because I know it reveals a heart that trusts God in all circumstances. A heart that truly understands Romans 8.28 All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Oh, that I would bless the Lord in the face of tragedy. That we would bless the Lord in calamity. So after worshipping, David stopped his fast and had something to eat. And his servants, confused, said, Why did you fast while the child was, still, was alive and eat when the child died? Isn't that the wrong way around? And David replied, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me? that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. God answered David's prayer, but the answer was no. If we're fasting to get an answer from God about something, there's no point continuing when the answer's clear. If God says no or if he says yes, There's no reason to continue your fast. Get up, accept God's answer and get on with life. In the book of Ezra we see fasting associated with humility. It's part of the way we express our dependence on God. And in Ezra 8 we read, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Again, our attitude when we fast is all important. We come before God in humility. If we're fasting to be noticed by other people or fasting to try and force God's hand, we face his judgment instead. In fact, fasting can become dangerous. It can be a point of pride for us. Jesus warns about that. We'll get to that a bit later on. We must be very careful to search our hearts about why we are fasting and what we hope to achieve by it. The last reason I had 
listed is uh, for fasting and spiritual preparation for an event. There's a couple of examples in the book of Acts. One of them is in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Shortly after that, in chapter 14, we read, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And of course we have the the example of Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he commenced his ministry. That's an, an extreme fast, but in some way it prepared him both for the temptation he was about to face and the ministry he was about to undertake. And he responded, as you'll recall, to the first of his temptations with, It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting should remind us that our appetite for food is a picture of our desperate need for the true food, the true bread that comes from God alone and that's found in his word where it is written, it is written. So fasting can be an appropriate part of preparation for a significant event in Christian life and ministry and it may help help to sharpen our spiritual ears, so to speak, so we can hear the Holy Spirit more clearly. But the Bible doesn't make clear, as far as I can tell, just how fasting does benefit us when we're appointing or being appointed to some form of service. But these examples are in Scripture for a reason, so it can certainly do us no harm to fast in preparation for a significant event. It may do us much good. There's several other reasons to fast. They're in your handout if you want to look into it a bit more deeply. But it might be time to give a couple of warnings. The Bible warns us about our attitude when we fast. There's plenty of passages in the Old Testament where God criticises the people for their attitude when they fasted. Fasting for the wrong reasons. And fasting as if they would impress God but they still go about doing their own thing. Fasting with the wrong attitude not only makes God turn a deaf deaf ear to our pleas but may bring punishment on us that's frightening but Jesus tells us the correct way, the correct attitude to fasting in Matthew 6 he says and when you fast notice he says when you fast, not if you fast, Jesus assumes that Christians will fast But when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The right way to fast is in secret when you're doing personal or even corporate fasting fast in secret and let's face it if we're fasting in secret we're not doing it for the applause of men we're doing it 
for God. We're doing it to develop our relationship with the Lord, the only one who actually sees. And notice when we fast that way, our Father will reward us, Jesus said. I have no idea how he will reward us, but he made the promise. So that should be good enough for us. Many years ago, an elderly friend of ours told me a story of a young man she knew who had just become a Christian. And uh, in his excitement, he was reading the Bible and he read this, pas- this passage in Matthew chapter 6 where it says, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So he thought, well, Jesus said it, I better do it. So he polished himself up, got his face nice and clean, slicked his hair back with the oil like they used to do back in the 50s and went on his fast. We would think that's funny. He obviously doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, but uh, I can't help but think God would bless that type of simple faith. He took... He did put sackcloth, did he? Okay, there's another detail of the story. He put sackcloth on as well. <laughs> so he took, him, took it seriously. It's a simplicity of faith I wish I had. We search the scriptures in vain for practical advice about how to fast, how often to fast. The Bible's silent on that. The Bible's concerned with our attitude to fasting and when we fast, not the details of the practice. In fact, the Bible's not even concerned to tell us we must fast. Jesus said when you fast, but he didn't say you must fast. It's left entirely up to our discretion and to our leading. We can fast if we can choose to, if we choose to. We can not fast if we don't want to. There's no condemnation either way. And anyone who would try to impose fasting on you for any reason is trying to bring you into bondage to the laws of man. So having set those ground rules, how might we fast? What extent should we fast? There's a few different types of fast shown in the Bible. There's a full fast where you abstain from all food and drink except for water for a period of time. There's a partial fast where you abstain from food or drink, but not all, as Daniel did, you might recall. He abstained from delicate foods or something. I can't remember exactly how it puts it, but, but the fancy stuff he abstained from and drank, ate, ate fruit and drank juice. So we might fast from alcohol or coffee, for example, to do a partial fast. Given that the Bible makes no demands to fast in a certain way or from particular things, I think it's reasonable for us to permit fasting from other things, not just food and drink. If fasting is the deliberate abstinence from some form of physical gratification, then anything that provides physical gratification is a suitable thing to fast from. Assuming I'm correct, and it's up to you to make a decision about whether I am correct based on the scriptures, this means you can fast from food and drink, You can fast from Facebook, you can fast from sex, or golf, or TV. The list is almost endless. But you're always fasting from something you like, something you enjoy. I don't fast from Brussels sprouts, for instance. I loathe and detest Brussels sprouts. They are evidence of the fall, in my opinion. (laughs) 
So if I chose to fast from Brussels sprouts, I doubt whether my fasting would have any effect with God or do anything to build me up. We've touched on fasting can be done privately, but you can also do it as a small group. You can do it as a congregation. And we may at times during this year, as there are particular reasons or tragedies or something, we may call you to fast as a congregation. We can fast nationally, although I think in Australia in the 21st century it would be difficult to call the nation to fasting. But who knows what God can do? Mm, church could. How long should a fast go for? There's lots of different fasts. There's part of a day. There's one day. There's three days shown in the Bible. Seven days. 21 days Daniel fasted for. And then, of course, there's those supernatural fasts of 40 days that Jesus and Moses and I think Elijah did. We should fast for as long as or as short as we want to or as we feel the Holy Spirit prompting us to do. How often should we fast? Again, we have examples in Scripture. There's regular fasting. The Day of Atonement was a fast day. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. There's occasional fasting and there's continuous fasting, which John the Baptist did. He had a diet of locusts and mild honey. So uh, not the sort of diet that would appeal to me, but he had a continuous fast. The Bible gives us great latitude when we choose to fast. No one can say we're right or wrong by choosing to fast or choosing not to fast. No one can say we're right or wrong by choosing to fast from certain things and not other things or about whether we do it privately or do it as a group or about the length or the frequency of our fasting. It's entirely up to us. But fasting, if we choose to do it, must always be an act of devotion and worship to the Lord, leaning on him, drawing near to him. Nearly every instance of fasting we see in scripture is accompanied by prayer and worship. That is the way to approach fasting, with prayer and worship. Sure, we all know the power of addiction. Some people have visible addictions, alcohol, cigarettes, junk food, for example. Others less visible but no less powerful, pornography, for example. There are addictions that seem harmless and even socially acceptable, TV, video games and Facebook being the classic examples of those. But if we decide to fast from them, we're going to experience some side effects. And sometimes those side effects can be quite severe. So when we choose to fast, especially if we're fasting from food, it can be wise to do a bit of preparation. Giving up junk food and plunging straight into a seven-day water-only fast will probably not be healthy, and it probably won't be helpful for us either. The extreme withdrawal symptoms and the likelihood of total failure to finish the fast will probably only discourage us from future fasting. We should be wise, particularly if we're going to go into longer fasts. And we need to be prepared for those withdrawal symptoms. I once gave up coffee for an extended period of time. I know that's hard for you to believe that I would give up coffee, but I did. And for two weeks, I felt like I had the flu. The withdrawals were far more brutal than I expected. Be warned, 
there will be withdrawal symptoms if you choose to fast. Those who are experienced at fasting recommend easing into it, especially if you plan a longer water-only fast. Do it in stages. Skip one meal to begin with, then work up to 24-hour fast. There may be a few days, then a full seven days, but work up to it gradually. Get your body accustomed to it, get used to recognising the withdrawal symptoms and get used to working out what you need to do to sustain your health during that time. I haven't found anyone in my preparation for this who recommends we tackle a full 40-day fast like Jesus and Moses did. They were supernaturally prompted and supernaturally sustained through it. It's not to say that the Lord can't or won't sustain us through a 40-day fast, but it's highly unlikely that he would call us to that. Both of those fasts, Jesus and Moses, were very specific fasts for specific events in redemptive history that no longer apply today. There is no giving of the law today. We have it in the word. There is no life leading to a cross for the salvation of sinners. Jesus has finished that. And those fasts were associated with those two events that will never happen again in human history. Most people recommend easing out of a fast with fresh vegetables and fruit juice, not just diving into a juicy steak and chips, as attractive as that might seem. And one other thing, fasting from food and drink when you're pregnant or unwell or diabetic may not be wise. Check with your local doctor, practical advice, before you start, especially if you plan to do longer fasts over days, for example. It's funny, when I started working on this message, I didn't think I'd have very much to say. And yet I find I haven't got enough time to say everything I'd like to say and everything I see the Bible say about it, and the practical advice I've found from various authors and other people on it. The Bible has much to teach us about fasting, of course, that's no surprise. You'll find other resources on your handout sheet to help you if you decide to study and, and tackle fasting yourself, and encourage you to have a look up. There's a number of web resources there for you that uh, can help you with some of the theology behind fasting and a lot of practical ideas as well to how to go about it. There's one other reason we might choose to fast that I didn't mention before. During his ministry, Jesus was questioned about why his disciples didn't fast when all the other devout and religious people did. And in Mark 2 we read, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and they will fast in that day. Jesus walked the earth as a man for a time 20 centuries ago. While he was here, his followers had no reason to fast. They were celebrating his presence. They were in the presence of the bridegroom. There was no reason to fast. They walked with him and talked with him face to face. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day, Jesus said. 
while we have the spiritual presence of Jesus with us today through the Holy Spirit, we don't have his physical presence anymore. We don't yet see him face to face. We will one day. He's coming again. He's coming to take us into his presence forever. On that day, there will be no more need to fast. But until then, we can fast as a reminder to us that he is still coming. A bit like we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again whenever we have communion. By fasting, we're proclaiming our confidence in his future return. Our physical hunger hunger should be a reminder to us of our spiritual hunger, of our need for nourishment that only he can bring. And he will bring it one day. He will return one day. We will no longer need to fast then because our fasting will be turned into feasting. Are you expectant with hope at his return? Are you hungry for his presence? Will you rejoice on that day when the bridegroom returns to collect his bride? Or will you recoil from him in horror and fear? If your reaction will be to turn away from him on that day, I call on you to put your trust in him today. He will fill the emptiness that goes deeper than your stomach, the hollowness that's in your soul, and your feasting will begin today. If you already know this one, who's coming again to take you to a wedding feast like you've never experienced before, I invite you to begin practising fasting. It's one of the means that the Lord will use to conform us to the image of his Son. I invite you to consider adding fasting to your life. We've looked at a number of different reasons and situations why you might fast. The choice is yours, but I encourage you to consider it. It's one of the spiritual disciplines designed to conform us to the image of Christ. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are coming back one day, and in that day there will be no more need to fast. In that day there will be great joy and feasting. Until then, Lord, we fast, we mourn, we pray, we repent, and we worship. And we do it with hope and with expectancy, and we do it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.